Welcome everyone to the Pain Demonium Podcast. This is episode two with Dr. Ari Grice. Dr. Grice is a doctor of osteopathic medicine here in Philadelphia, specializing in alternative forms of pain management. I find this episode to be incredibly insightful. We're going to discuss the history of CBD, medical cannabis, as well as the benefits and risks of its use as an alternative to opioids. One of the reasons why I found it to be so helpful for me is because medical schools don't seem to be using CBD education as an important tool in combating the opioid crisis just yet. But as we're going to discuss in the following discussion, um, that could be changing in the near future. So a quick introduction about Ari. He's a board-certified physician who specializes in the non-operative treatment of spinal and musculoskeletal disorders. He's the director of the Medical Cannabis Department at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. He's a senior fellow in the Institute of Emerging Health Professions, as well as a contributor to the Lambert Center for the Study of Medical Cannabis and Hemp. He's interested in the treatment of chronic pain and cannabis as an alternative to opioids. Dr. Grice is also a member of the board of the Rothman Institute Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. That foundation is also the co-sponsor of this podcast. They are a 501c3 organization aimed at funding and advancing research uh, aimed at combating the opioid epidemic in this country. If you'd like to donate to that cause, you can visit rothmanopioid.org and find the tab to donate there. So without further ado, Dr. Ari Grice. All right, here we are. Welcome, Dr. Grice. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, a unique opportunity. Absolutely. So unfortunately, we would have loved to see each other in person, but due to the current pandemic, we have to do this over Zoom. But uh, it's really great to have you in today. I think this is an incredibly exciting topic because as medical education progresses, um, I think it's important that not just patients hear this information, but medical professionals, legislators, all the people that are involved around patient care. And I can tell you firsthand that I don't believe I got much CBD or, ca- or cannabinoid-related education when it comes to pain management in my medical school education. And I don't know if you can reflect on this as well, but I think I, I probably learned more about diseases that have been eradicated for more than 20 years, more than CBD treatment. So just to start off, can you tell me a bit about you know your exposure to CBD or or THC or cannabinoid in relation to pain treatment and kind of uh, what you were taught during medical school? Sure. Well, uh, it's an interesting point because uh, as you as you mentioned, most of us haven't learned anything about cannabis in medical school. Um, and I think cannabis is probably the most useful term to use because it includes all the cannabinoids, including CBD and THC. And, and not only that, uh, what's, what's even more remarkable is that we aren't taught in any part of our uh, medical training about the endocannabinoid system. And, 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 and those, that is a, 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 a set of receptors in our body that these endogenous cannabinoids uh, attach to. And it's wild because it's really part of our basic human physiology that we've known about since around the early 1990s. So it, 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 this is a, a science in its infancy, but that being said, it's largely being ignored in medical education. And it really is part of our basic science. So in theory, this is stuff that we should be learning 
Um, you could argue in high school or, or in, in medical or in college, uh, pre-med students, when they're learning, you know, anatomy and physiology, I, I think at this point should be learning about the, the endocannabinoid system because we all have these receptors in our body. And I knew about not, none of this uh, really until in, uh, maybe five years ago when I, when I attended my first cannabis conference and it was the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting. And, you know, that's when I realized sort of the wealth of existing basic science. Um, but before I actually learned about the endocannabinoid system, I, I was exposed to cannabis uh, uh, use as a medicine when I did my medical residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I hadn't realized it when I arrived there, but Seattle was one of the first states in the country to legalize medical cannabis in 1998, just a couple of years after California did it in 1996. And I did my residency there between 2004 and 2007. And this was long before the days of dispensaries where patients could go to a store and purchase products that were regulated by the state. Uh, it was pretty wild, but if you had a severe medical condition and your doctor felt that cannabis could be a benefit, uh, he or she could write a, a, a letter that stated that you had a condition that might benefit from cannabis. And then the state basically allowed you to grow your own plants, a certain number of them. I forget how many it was. Wow. And then you had, then you had the ability to, and so you had to be basically a gardener. To, to, to be able to use cannabis, you had to know how to grow it. And it's not that you couldn't learn it, but um, it, 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 you, had to, you had to be good at it, right? And you had to know, you, you could grow the plant and you could use the flowers of the plant and you could smoke the plant or you could make products with flowers. Um, and you were uh, not gonna get prosecuted for it, right? If you had this, this letter saying, I'm allowed to own this, then you wouldn't get in trouble. And this was on a state level or was this yeah, on a this federal level? So, so if you, if you were caught by federal police, would that be a different oh, situation? Yeah. Oh, or? That'd be very different because it's, it's remains federally so, legal. Um, but, um, you know, if, if in theory, if, if the police saw your plants being grown in the backyard, you were, you were, you were, you were allowed to have them. Um, and so mm -hmm. my experience in physical med and rehabilitation was really working with a, a group of physicians at the University of Washington. And there was only a couple of them, but they were the ones that treated multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injury patients. And I, I, one doctor worked with a, a lot of patients with neurodegenerative disorders. Um, and these were, these were patients that had, you know, really chronic progressive uh, neurological issues associated with a lot of neuropathic pain. And many of them had really exhausted their, their treatment options. They, they had done the therapies and had injections and tried a variety of pharmaceutical medications, and they were still suffering from chronic pain. And I'm a new resident uh, from Philadelphia showing up there, and I, this is all brand new to me, but I, I remember a lot of these patients who, you know, had major mobility issues and were in wheelchairs and they told me that they tried it all that nothing else helped and that's when they smoked cannabis 
uh, it relieved their symptoms for a while and it helped them sleep and it improved their quality of life. And I thought it was intriguing, but I, I never really thought that it was going to be available for me as a clinician because in Pennsylvania it was illegal and Pennsylvania is sort of known as being a relatively conservative state. Um, you know, and even with alcohol in our state, you, you get alcohol at state run um, stores and, you know, in other states you can buy beer and liquor, you know, in a gas station. And, you know, so Pennsylvania didn't seem like it was a state that was going to do it, but um, that was my first exposure. And in 2016 is when governor Wolf proposed this legislation to, to, to make it medically legal. And it, it took a couple of years before it came to fruition, but I had been treating chronic pain patients, um, post fellowship since 2008. And I, I was in search of alternatives to treat pain because I have, I had so many chronic pain patients that, um, were, were, were in a similar position as these uh, patients that I met in Seattle where they had, they had tried a lot of different modalities and medications and many were on opioids. And there's been a sort of constant struggle with chronic pain patients and trying to sort of minimize opioid exposure, knowing that they're habit forming medications and there's potential for risks and including, you know, overdose and potential death. So I was kind of like really getting frustrated with my practice and felt that there was a need for alternatives. And I, 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 I know I had known about cannabis for a while and I, I knew it to be a safer option, uh, mainly because it's not, there's not a lethal dose that you can consume. So that in and of itself was appealing to me. And it also just seemed like a really unique opportunity to get involved in, in research because I, I knew this was kind of like a, an unchartered area of medicine and pain management and that we could learn a lot about how cannabinoids could be used, you know, potentially as an alternative to opioids. And that was really the premise for our, um, our work in developing a department within Rothman Orthopedics where we we kind of made it available to patients who were appropriate candidates, but also collected outcome measures and followed these patients to see if in fact it helped and if it in fact if it in fact affected their opioid consumption. So when you were you're you're saying when you started or when you joined a practice and the other practitioners were kind of addressing pain management in a different direction. Can you tell me what research existed at that point to kind of guide them in that direction? With regard to cannabinoids or? With regards to using other alternatives to cannabinoids, more traditional ones like, let's say, opioid medications. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate. I think many people know the story around opioids, but when you look right. back, it, it, it is really, it is really just a terrible story because we've known forever that opioids are dangerous drugs, you know? Um, and as a result of me preparing a number of lectures on this topic, comparing opioids to cannabinoids and looking at the hi history of these substances, which have been used by humans for thousands of years, 
um, it's like we've made the mistake over and over and over again. We, we knew of the dangers of opioids at the, uh, uh, you know, at the turn of the century. So in the early 1900s, there were no drugs that were illegal. And, you know, um, people were using opioids um, to treat things like simple things like, a, like as a cough suppressant, you know, and because it, it worked as a cough suppressant, but then people realized, wow, this is really habit forming. And oh, by the way, if you take too much, you could accidentally overdose and die. So the first, the first time that the government kind of intervened uh, was really to make heroin illegal, um, uh, and 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 basically, you know, I think people were well aware of the risks of opioids. And at that time, cannabis was used as a medicine to treat a variety of different conditions, including pain and uh, inflammatory problems like arthritis. Um, and, and even in the middle of the, of the century, like in the 1950s when oxycodone was invented, it was rarely used. Um, and uh, it was saved for people with the most severe cases of pain, uh, end of life, pain management and things like that. And, and it was really sort of this, things changed in the 1990s when, when, when I think the, uh, the attitude towards opioids changed. And it, and it really wasn't based on good science. And, and that was really the problem. It was really a combination of factors, including um, our, our decision to treat pain more aggressively. Um, in the mid 1990s, this joint commission uh, on pain management basically decided we need to treat pain as the fifth vital sign. And, and that's when we started asking so many patients what their pain levels were. And we had them rate their pain levels and we were encouraged to treat their pain um, more aggressively. And I think that came in combination with sort of a, a huge marketing campaign from the pharmaceutical industry to reintroduce opioids in the form of these long acting medications like OxyContin and long acting versions of morphine. And we were kind of like tricked into thinking that these long acting delayed release medications were gonna be less habit forming. And 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 that's real. I mean, I, I, I sat through many drug rep lunches where pharmaceutical companies sat there and with straight faces told us these are safe medications they're not habit forming and that if your chronic pain patients said that their pain wasn't well managed that the answer was to just increase the dosage so in my fellowship we had and this was even in the late tw 2000s right yeah, this is in 2008 when I did my, my fellowship in sports and spine rehab. And no joke, there were like, every day there was a drug rep lunch and three out of the five days of the week, it was, a, it was an opioid company. And they brought these lavish lunches and gave us pens and all sorts of crap with their company's name on it. And we had patients that would start off on 15 milligrams of a long acting opioid twice a day. And they'd come back and they'd say, it's better, but I still have pain. And then we'd increase to like 20 milligrams and 30 milligrams. And before you know it, we had patients that were on hundreds of milligrams of long acting opioids. And 
that never really sat well with me because these were patients that had chronic arthritic problems that weren't going to go away. They're only going to get worse with time. So there was kind of no end in sight. And these aren't drugs that were easy to stop. You know, you can easily, if you miss a dose, you feel withdrawal symptoms that included symptoms of like feeling like you have a horrible flu. And so it really turned me off and I, I knew it wasn't sort of the right thing to do, but I didn't realize how many people were, were suffering from, you know, addiction to these medications. And I had no idea how many people were dying from, from opioid overdoses, which are largely accidental. And so it really wasn't good science. You know, there, the, the, there was no evidence that long acting opioids were effective at treating chronic low back pain, but yet we were told to use these medications liberally. And when I got into practice, um, I had many patients that were asking, if not begging for more opioids. And it was always the most awkward and uncomfortable, you know, moments of my day when, when I had someone who was sort of desperately asking for more opioids. And, and what I realized is that it wasn't even treating their pain. It was really just treating their addiction and preventing them from going into withdrawal. And so I, I kind of made it a point to, to minimize prescribing these medications uh, to try to convince people that were on these medications that we needed to do something about reducing their dosages and to try and offer them alternatives. And there are there were alternatives other than cannabinoids that weren't available at the time, including neuropathic pain medications such as gabapentin and pregabalin and you know, a variety of other modalities and treatments that we could offer people. And little by little, I think I was kind of successful in, in convincing certain people that these were dangerous drugs to stay on and they should really try to, to consider the alternatives. But uh, that's what, what, what made me so drawn to the option of cannabinoids because um, there's actually more evidence available uh, for using cannabinoids to treat pain than, than mo most other medical conditions. And I think the safety profile is so much better than opioids. They're, they're not without risk, but they're just a safer alternative. And that's really what we've seen in the last three years of providing patients access to medical cannabis. For the most part, we're not seeing the problems that we, that we saw with opi opioids. So I think that's a great segue because, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the need to do research and why it's important, especially for something like CBD for medicinal use. Could you talk a little bit about the existing research right now, either that you've seen or that uh, you've read or you've been a part of, and why it's so important to actually look into this? Because, you know, new legislation just was passed in the House called the Moore Act, right? And this, in a sense, decriminalized um, some portions of, let's say, uh, CBD or, or medicinal marijuana, uh, among other things. And I think that's a great tool to use for future research because a lot of the studies that we have are not sufficient when it comes to finding out what's the best option for pain because not everyone has access legally or distributive wise to CBD. So can you talk a bit about those two concepts, what we know so far, about the research of CBD and the importance of studying it in the future? 
For sure, for sure. And I think to your point, you know, there's a lot of misinformation around cannabis and CBD and THC, et cetera. And um, it's such a charged topic because it's remained illegal at the federal level for over 80 years. Um, and, you know, people say things all the time that aren't true about cannabis. And one of the common things that I hear is like, there's no evidence that cannabis works. And the reality is there a, a lot of the people that claim that cannabis is good for everything. Uh, there isn't evidence to support their, their claims. Right. Um, but when you do look at the research, there are a few things that have been pretty well studied. And uh, there was actually a, a, a big um, paper published uh, on the current state of the evidence on cannabis and cannabinoids. It was published in 2017. And uh, it was published by the National Academy of Science. And basically, uh, a large group of researchers reviewed all, all of the available abstracts on cannabis and cannabinoids. And they found basically three different things that there was substantial or conclusive evidence that cannabinoids were helpful for treating. And everything else was like a little bit wishy-washy. It was like, we have some evidence, it's not great evidence. And, and when we look at evidence, the quality of the evidence matters so much, right? I think a lot, I think that's something that the general population doesn't fully understand. Just because a research study was done and they came to a conclusion doesn't mean it was good research. You know, if you looked at 10 people and, you know, four of them had a, a positive effect, that, that's not enough. Right. We need good quality right. research. And so, but this report found that, that cannabinoids were effective at treating chronic pain in adults, uh, treating chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, um, and treating uh, pain and muscle spasticity related to multiple sclerosis so we have we have sufficient evidence it could be improved upon there, there these weren't large controlled trials but there there were some really nice trials done outside of the united states looking at um preparations of thc plus or minus cbd showing that it helped with pain and i, I think further research is definitely necessary and we need to look deeper into uh, specific medical conditions and different preparations of cannabinoids that could be most effective but i think we we have a, we're off to like a really good start when it comes to using cannabinoids for pain and it, it really does seem to be one of the the reasons uh or or one of the main conditions that there's sufficient evidence to at least encourage us to look into it further and when you look at people who use cannabis as a medicine, by far the number one reason is to treat pain. And, and we've seen that in a number of survey studies and we're seeing it in Pennsylvania where medical cannabis has legalized for something like 21 different conditions. By far, pain is the number one reason that people seek to use cannabis as medicine. And there's still a million questions about it. We still don't know the utility of CBD as a pain medicine. There's actually more evidence that CBD can help with things like seizure disorders and anxiety. But that's an example of some of the myths around things like CBD, where 
people say it's good for pain and there's really not a lot of research showing CBD by itself is really a good pain reliever. We, we have studies showing that CBD when combined with THC helps with pain, but we're looking further into CBD because it, it's, it's not intoxicating in any way. And it would be surely nice to use a chemical that's not intoxicating to treat something like chronic pain. Um, but what I've come to learn is that even though THC is famous for getting people high and uh, for, for it being used as a recreational drug, um, it's very similar to alcohol where a small amount can provide sort of a sense of relaxation without an impairment where you're not, you know, like, you know, many people can have a glass of wine and drive home from dinner. You know, you're not impaired or intoxicated from a small amount of alcohol. And I think what we're seeing is with some of our patients that are not looking to be intoxicated, small amounts of THC are well tolerated, especially when combined with CBD. And that's why we're starting to really get excited about the potential for more and more research because people seem to tolerate it well and it seems to be helpful in a variety of different ways. How much is currently known on the molecular basis for pain management, like the, the you're talking about the receptors before? How much is currently known about the interactions between those receptors and CBD or those receptors and THC? See, when you say that CBD plus THC is a little bit more effective, does that mean that THC is more effective in general than CBD? Or is it just an additive effect? Well, there's actually quite a bit of literature on this topic, and most of it's preclinical science, um, you know, looking at animal model studies, mostly mice and rats. But it's amazing to, to see what some neuroscientists are looking at in terms of the receptors in the, in the central nervous system. And one of the really neat things about the interplay between cannabinoids in general is that there there is a theory that seems to be supported by the research that the different cannabinoids in the plant work together to provide you know a more robust effect on the human body some people call it the entourage effect but it does really appear that thc which is the most prevalent cannabinoid in, in the in the cannabis sativa plant uh, is, is like the main active ingredient. You know, I, I've had a lot of patients that try hemp CBD products and weren't too impressed with the effects or they noticed a mild effect. But when combined with THC, there was just a more, more a noticeable effect. And it, and it wasn't, I feel high now. It was just, I felt, I felt it, the medicine working better. And so one one cool thing about CBD is that it appears to diminish some of the typical side effects that can come with THC. And it seems to not directly bind to CB1 receptors that THC binds to, but almost like attaches to a docking station uh, on the receptor that augments uh, the effect of THC on the CB1 receptor. Uh, thereby diminishing some of uh, some of the negative effects that, that can be associated with THC, which can be sometimes um, a little bit of anxiety or rapid heartbeat. Um, and so that's what we're looking for is how to make the medicine most tolerable. And, and I think some of that comes from this understanding of the receptor system. Um, and I think the future is 
pretty wide open in terms of pharmaceutical intervention because there are lots of things that can be done to prevent the reuptake of these endogenous cannabinoids that exist in our body. There have been two that have been identified, an anandamide and two arachidonylglycerol or 2-AG. And so these are, these are chemicals that exist in all of our bodies. And just like we use serotonin reuptake inhibitors to treat things like depression, you know, there may be reuptake inhibitors for things like 2-AG and anandamide that may have substantial therapeutic effects. And there are also probably going to be pharmaceutical drugs in the future that block receptors or stimulate receptors in our central nervous system that provide similar effects that ingesting cannabis can do. Absolutely. It, it actually sounds, you know, incredibly fascinating because the amount that we don't know that we, we will know soon because more and more people are adopting uh, medicinal use of CBD. It, it just fascinates me. But if I could just ask you, what do you think is going to be the future in the, in the next immediate, let's say a couple of years in terms of treatment with CBD? Do you think like mental health will be targeted? Are there any other diseases that like, like inflammatory diseases that you think will be the target? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really wild because this is such an area of interest that when I go to some of these cannabinoid conferences, there are researchers from around the world that are looking at the potential benefits of cannabinoids in every single area of medicine, um, from cardiovascular to gastrointestinal. Um, and that's because these receptors are all over our body. There are CB2 receptors on our bones. And so people are looking at, can we, can we stimulate these receptors to treat things like osteoporosis? Um, people are looking at cannabis to treat things like autism. And I, I think the areas of interest are largely going to include areas of medicine that we really lack sufficient effective treatments. There's so many examples where we can I tell someone we know what problem you have, we don't have a great solution for it. We don't have a cure and we don't have medications that treat the symptoms very well. And so knowing that there's this widespread neuromodulatory neurotransmitter and receptor system in our body, we have to take advantage of some of this basis, basic science that we're, we're learning so much about. And I, I think we're going to see an explosion of research in kind of all areas of medicine. Um, the question is, where is there the most potential? You know, is it really everywhere or... Or is it really going to be more in the pain and in, in inflammation um, problems that we see? Because that, that's sort of a widespread issue, right? In, inflammation in the body affects all organ systems. And we know that, um, that part of the breakdown of these endogenous cannabinoids is mediated through um, the... The, the development of prostaglandins in our body. Um, and so there's, there's something to do with the inflammatory cascade uh, and, the, and the endocannabinoid system uh, that we've identified. And the question is, where can we intervene? Where can we be most effective? But um, I think outside of chronic pain and neuropathic pain, um, you know, there, 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 there may be research in, in, in lots of other interesting areas um, including seizures and, and other, you know, cognitive 
issues because of the prevalence of these receptors in the, in the central nervous system. I honestly love how deep dive we got into this uh, a molecular yeah. biology major myself so it's, it <laughs> it's exciting uh, but I, I I just wanted to move on quickly because I think it's really important now that we're learning about the proper usage of CBD in our current society um, can you tell me a bit about your pain clinic and how patients could you know be uh, can come to you with specific requests what's the general process for obtaining uh, a license for medicinal CBD? Uh, and who's best suited to come to you and, and ask those types of questions? Sure. So again, my, my patient population is largely chronic orthopedic pain. And um, it, within that, it involves a, a good amount of neuropathic pain. So people with spinal stenosis or disc herniations that are pinching on nerves and causing symptoms of radiculopathy. Um, so pain down the an extremity. And so... What, what has really been interesting is that a lot of the interest has come from some of my elderly population, because that's a large portion of my patients. And many of these patients uh, have never used cannabis before and aren't looking to get high or be intoxicated. And so the way it works is, again, largely out of desperation and lack of benefit from other treatments people hear that cannabis might help with pain and they think maybe I should try it. I've got nothing to lose. I, I don't know what else to do. And so the general process is registering with the health department, uh, seeing a physician like myself who can uh, certify that they have one of the qualifying medical conditions that the state has deemed uh, gives them access to cannabis. And then they, they obtain a, an identification card, a, a medical cannabis identification card that's used to shop at state-run dispensaries. So it's a pretty neat system. Pennsylvania is doing an actually wonderful job of um, using medicinal cannabis um, and including healthcare professionals in the process that have some training in cannabinoid science. And there's a pharmacist or other healthcare professional on site at every dispensary and all of the products that are being sold are, are regulated by third party tests to make sure that there aren't things like pesticides or heavy metals in the products and that what the, what the companies are claiming is in the product is actually there. So there's a, there's a degree of certainty that when they are most of the products that are made here, uh, excuse me, that are, that are purchased here, are they made here? They have to be. Let's say in the United States, they have okay. to be made within the state that they're being sold because of the federal prohibition. So by definition, cannabis remains a schedule one drug. Therefore, it cannot cross state lines. So all the cannabinoid products in Pennsylvania were from plants grown in Pennsylvania. And and basically um, there are there are four different ways to ingest cannabis in Pennsylvania. Smoking is not allowed, but vaporization of the plant material, the flowers of the plant or the oil extracts that are produced uh, is allowed. There are pills and capsules. There are sublingual tinctures, which are concentrated oil drops that go underneath your tongue. And there are topical lotions and creams. And so once I certify a patient, I, I educate them on these routes of delivery and the different cannabinoids like CBD and THC found in them. And I also give them recommendations on dosing because people need to know that THC has the potential for intoxication. 
and that there are certain dosages that are more likely to cause that effect. And the problem with the program is that when we, when we provide a certification and someone gets a card, it's like having a blank prescription. So I, I'm not technically prescribing this drug. I, I have no idea what people are gonna get at the dispensary. They can choose for themselves or they can listen to someone who works at the dispensary that may or may not have a ton of knowledge on the topic. And I think that's why a lot of physicians aren't totally comfortable with doing what I'm doing because you're relying on your patient to, to listen to you to get products that are reasonable uh, but it's really analogous to giving someone a prescription for oxycodone and saying, take this to CVS and you can pick out as whatever dose you want and get as many pills as you want and take them as frequently as you'd like. Um, and that's the benefit of controlled substances is the, the doctor has control and the doctor says, I'm going to prescribe you this medication it has potential dangers but we're going to limit the dosage and the frequency that you use these pills or medications. And I don't have that control with cannabis. I, I think I have to trust my patients and they have to trust me. And it doesn't always work out. Sometimes people get the wrong dose or wrong medication from a recommendation from the dispensary. And, and that's, that's been my most recent struggle is, is convincing people that they need to pay attention to these dosages. There's a way to avoid the, the side effects and intoxication, but they have to really, they have to do a lot more work than they would if they went to a pharmacy and they just were given the pills and it said, take five milligrams three times a day. The all important patient doctor relationship that we learn about. Really is. Um, so found that's really interesting yeah. is that the people who come to me and they say, honestly, I don't wanna get high. I'm scared of getting high they listen to my recommendation. And when they come back, they say, I got, I got what you told me to get. You were right. It, it wasn't that strong. And hopefully more times than not, they found that it was helpful. So can you talk a bit about that? Your, your patients, what have you seen so far in terms of uh, pain relief in general, if we're talking specifically? Sure. About that? So I would say in general, and this isn't an exaggeration, but it, it although it might take a few months for people to get it right, to find the right route of delivery, to find the right dose. A majority of people find that it's helpful in one way or another. I've had patients tell me that it might not have taken their pain away, but it, it lessened it. Uh, I have people tell me that my pain's pretty much the same as it was, but I'm getting much better sleep and getting a better night's sleep has allowed me to deal with my pain during the day better. I've had people tell me that I still have my back pain, but this medicine makes me less anxious and being less anxious helps me feel that the pain has lessened. And, and a lot of people with chronic pain, you know, if you don't have chronic pain, you can't relate. But if you if you're dealing with daily six or seven out of 10 pain, bringing that pain down a couple notches to a three or a four or it really makes a difference. You know, it can it can translate into not just a higher quality of life, but better function. And so for the most part, we're finding that it helps with pain, um, anxiety, and sleep. It can be a little bit of a, a mood booster, which you can imagine living with chronic pain can be depressing. And so that that's helpful for a lot of people. And the, the, the greatest thing that we've seen is major reductions in opioid consumption. I mean, 
I've had, I mean, when we're looking at our data and we're about to publish some really cool research showing that people that are taking opioids before they get certified for access to cannabis, a majority of them are reducing their opioid dosages and a large number are completely stopping opioids. I've had in the last few months, three or four patients tell me that they took opioids three to four times a day for a decade. And wow. within six wow. months of getting access to cannabis got completely off. And those are the most meaningful and amazing stories. And, and the patients are all so appreciative that this became an option. And they're so happy to be off these medications. You know, it, it's just an amazing thing. And these are people that could have run into a problem, could have been a statistic. I mean, we know 130 people are dying from an accidental opioid overdose a day in this country. I mean, it's it's wild what the numbers are. And all that takes is, you know, sometimes just taking more pills than you needed to take or mixing those pills with anti-anxiety medications or alcohol and then just not waking up from your sleep. So so that's been really amazing to see that it it, it in practice it actually cannabinoids can be used as an opioid alternative and I and I I hope that more healthcare professionals realize this and encourage patients because I think there's like a stigma around cannabis that's not totally unnecessary and it's ingrained in our culture. And I think now more than ever, the general population realizes that, you know what, when I think about it, I know a bunch of people that use cannabis regularly and none of them have died. And some of them are living very productive lives and contributing to society in meaningful ways. And that's very different from the people that they know that are struggling with opioids a lot of the time. And, you know, if you know someone who's has a, a, a drug addiction, you, you kind of live in constant fear that you might not see them again. And, uh, you know, because of an overdose. And I, I think that's that's scary for families and communities. And it's the, the effects have been devastating. And I think we need to change our attitudes around cannabis in general. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that number is probably that 130 a day is probably even higher due to COVID, yeah. which is really sad to see and, and hear about. But um, that's honestly, that's that's jaw dropping. That is absolutely jaw dropping when we're talking about alternatives to pain management that you're seeing this. And I'm really excited to to hear about that and to, to read that publication in the future. Could you tell me a bit, you were talking about some of the addictive qualities of, of opioids. Do you, what's currently known about the addictive qualities, if any, of CBD and THC? And are you noticing any other prominent side effects? Um, and can you talk a bit about like something like, uh, like hyperemesis syndrome that we're seeing some, like, I'm reading about sure. in the literature? I think as much as I'm sort of supportive of cannabis as a medication and, and the fact that it warrants further investigation, I, I think it's important to recognize Number one, that it can be very habit forming. Um, and there are many people whose lives have not been helped by cannabis use and that there are definite at risk populations that should avoid cannabinoids. Uh, but when we talk about cannabinoids and the risks, again, I really think it goes back to THC, right? It's the main ingredient that provides some of the beneficial effects and it's probably what contributes to some of the um, mood effects. And if something is um, 
habit forming, it usually has pleasurable effects that people seek out. And that, that can lead to problems. And there, there is something known as cannabis use disorder. And you know, as you know, you can misuse lots of different substances. Um, many of them are legal. Um, but you know, you, you can, you can get addicted to a lot of things, uh, including tobacco and alcohol and caffeine and sugar, etc. Um, so cannabis is not benign, but I, but I do believe that the risk is, is associated with THC. And so people with mental health issues should avoid THC and, uh, people, who don't have a fully developed brain. So children and adolescents should avoid THC exposure because the earlier you use THC, the more likely you are to develop cannabis use disorder. And we know that, that that's well documented in the literature. People who start using uh, cannabis before the age of 18 are much more likely to have issues later on in life. Uh, but the, the rate of use disorder is much lower with cannabis than it is with these other substances. It's about 9% is the, is the number in the literature. People who consume alcohol regularly, there's about a 15% chance that you develop a, a, a use disorder with alcohol. And so again, the fact that we allow the legal sale of tobacco and alcohol in this country and prohibit the sale of cannabis makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, because we know that tobacco and alcohol ruins lives at much higher rates and people die from these substances at alarming rates. And so the fact that cannabis can be habit forming, but doesn't ruin lives in the same way or at the same rate and isn't lethal in any way is remarkable and warrants a reclassification of the drug. And it's just a matter of time. But we also know that in addition to, de to developing cannabis use disorder, excessive consumption of THC products can lead to something called um, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or cyclic vomiting syndrome. And it's largely avoidable, uh, but it's a condition where patients present oftentimes to the ER with repetitive vomiting and nausea and dehydration. And it's, it's almost associ always associated with the ingestion of high dosages of THC on a very regular basis. And what's amazing about cannabis is that when you stop using cannabis, you, don't, you, you might have very mild withdrawal symptoms, analogous to stopping caffeine on abruptly. You might be a little irritable. You might have some sleep disturbance. You might, it might affect your appetite or your mood and things like that. But within a few days to a week, you're back to normal and you don't get really sick from it. Uh, the issue with opioids is when you, when you take them on a regular basis and you stop, you get sick, really sick. And you can get diarrhea and night sweats, but you feel like you've had the worst flu of your life. And it's very disruptive, but it is not hard to cure uh, hyperemesis syndrome because all you have to do is dramatically reduce your THC intake and within days you're fine. So uh, there are risks and there are people that should avoid THC, but I think what we're probably going to find out is that the other cannabinoids like CBD and some of the other cannabinoids that haven't been mentioned like CBG and CBN and CBC are most likely largely safe to consume. 
And that's the question. Can we, can we develop pharmaceutical products or just cannabis products in general? Some of these products can be made at home that, that provide a safe therapeutic effect that can be used on a somewhat long-term basis for chronic diseases without the risks associated with other drugs. And, and there's risk with every drug, right? Even over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or naproxen and acetaminophen can cause horrible problems like liver damage and kidney damage and stomach ulcers, et cetera. But we accept that risk because we recognize that there's a safe way to ingest these medications. And that's by using the right dosage and using them at, you know, a, a frequency that won't cause these problems. And there's ways to monitor those issues that can arise. And so there's no reason that we can't introduce cannabinoids as a medicine for a variety of conditions safely. We just have to legalize it so that more research can be done. So higher quality studies can be performed and that we can answer some of the questions around what's the best dose for which condition, what are the best routes of delivery, et cetera. I agree. I think it's uh, really important. I'm reminded by the, the COVID vaccine that's coming out right now. A lot of people are talking about the research related to it. And one of the arguments I've heard is, you know, would you rather get the side effects of or the supposed side effects of the vaccine versus the disease? And so I think when addressing this, you're absolutely right in terms of looking at it from a way of not only... Um, I guess the addictive nature of opioids relative to THC or even CBD, but also the costs and how much as a society we're willing to put the costs on patients who necessarily would be better treated by a different substance. Um, as we start to look to the, to the close of the discussion, I just wanted to kind of provide a call to action to different uh, demographic groups that would kind of benefit from this information. And the first I want to talk about is medicine, medical education. That would be doctors, prescribers, um, public health professionals, and students, medical students, public health students, nursing students, all the healthcare professional career-related uh, uh, studies. What's the most important thing that you would say right now within a couple of minutes uh, that's important for them to know going forward? Well, I think, I think the, one of the most important things to recognize is, is this, is the safety of cannabinoids and, and the fact that we have, you know, a better understanding now than ever about how these chemicals work on the human body and to see their potential. Um, but I, I think there still remains a big problem because, you know, there's a real reason why more healthcare professionals aren't ready to join in the recommendation of these products. And, and that largely remains, remains the fact that, that cannabis is federally prohibited. And so, you know, that really sets the tone. Um, and I think it, it's affecting large institutions that oftentimes rely on federal funding to partake in medical education, but we as scientists have to do the right thing. And we have to, um, I think, convince uh, legislators and our governments 
that this is the right thing to do. It, it is the right thing to, to recognize the basic science part of the endocannabinoid system and the fact that, that this is real medicine. Um, and we need to kind of do our best to kind of continue to research the effectiveness of, of these medications. But situation that we're in right now is largely awkward in that regard because you know, I think there's the desire to do the work and there's the general population that has the desire to participate in the research and to try these medications. Um, but our hands are tied a little bit. You know, it's not easy to do this research uh, because there are regulatory issues at play. And even getting a study approved by the IRB uh, at major institutions is, is limited because of this uh, overarching sort of concern with the legality of the, the products that we want to study. Um, but I, but I think that we need to change, change our, our attitudes and we need to educate the public to destigmatize cannabis and to recognize it as a, a potentially legitimate medication uh, that, that can be used safely. And I think we need to start educating people what that means, you know, and I think um, we, we just, we have to come together on that. And that's one of the issues where we have state legalization that, and, and, and it varies from state to state, but medicine shouldn't vary from state to state. It should be the same around the world. And we should be able to share this information readily. So why do we have tons of research and pharmaceutical uh, companies in Canada, the UK and Israel and Australia. But here in the United States, you know, we're, we're, we're getting further and further behind on, on the topic. Right. It's actually perfect. I, I, I kind of wanted to address all those dif different demographics in that question. So we covered legislators. I think you're talking about just in general being more open to allowing medical professionals to study this and promote it amongst patients who really need it yep. and also for patients to be advocates themselves as well as to the pain treatment that they need to be seeking i'm not really sure exactly state by state how that varies but hopefully we will come to a time where every state you can have at least some place where you can go to that's nearby that you can have these types of questions answered and hopefully we're we're going towards that direction Thank you so much for talking about all these things. I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I I am incredibly happy to to learn about traditional uh, pain management uh, strategies, and we're really looking forward to your uh, future research. We're looking towards being on the right side of history in this matter, and hopefully putting an end to this epidemic, this this pain epidemic that we see in this country. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.